0: There is a major theme in the Scriptures. I want to see if you can pick up on it. I'm going to read you, starting in Job, quite a few passages. So if you're taking notes, you can write these down. Job chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, speaking of the Lord. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. Now listen to Psalm 147, verse 6. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Or Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Or Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Or Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And here is Mary's song that we listened to together over Christmas, Luke 1, 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Or the instruction from Paul in Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Or hear this from our study in James. James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And finally, Peter's words from 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7. Clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Now, why is it, do you think, that humility, and I hope you saw that theme there. Why is humility such an important and predominant message in the Bible? Well, it's because the first sin was pride. Pride is the belief that we are co-equal with God. God whether in freedom or as lawmakers or as creators or as rulers over our own lives or providers or sustainers or as deserving of of praise and glory, whatever it is, our pride says, like even the garden or like the builders of Babel, our pride says, I deserve equality with God, and if He will not give it to me, I will get it on my own. But faith and humility are two sides of the same coin. And faith and humility together say, I'm nothing. My only hope is Christ. The reason why humility is so often spoken of in the scriptures is because there is no such thing as a proud faith. And there is no such thing as humble unbelief. So the essence of all of these passages from the Old Testament and the New, and of course there are many, many more that I didn't read you, all of these passages about humility are teaching that when God saves us, He saves us first by humbling us so that we may look to Him as Savior. We must be brought low in order to respond in faith and be lifted up. In our pride, and in the sin of our pride, unless we are first humbled, we cannot turn to the Lord to save us. It is impossible. Impossible. And so to receive the salvation that God alone gives, we must be humbled, as Peter says, under the mighty hand of God. And the way that the Lord humbles us is through trials. Trials. Whether they be external trials, like what Job endures in the book of Job, or whether our trials are brought about by our own sin, God in His mercy will, not might, God will humble His children in order to turn us to Him in faith so that we may be saved. And that is primarily what the passage we are about to study is about. This section in Genesis, starting in verse twenty-nine, verse 30, or chapter 29, verse 31. This is about the humbling of Rachel. And you're going to see as we go through this, there's lots of babies born who, who will be the, the 12 fathers of the tribes of Israel. And this is their origin story. Yes, that's happening. And yes, there are, are an additional two wives added to the already complicated marriage of two sisters. Yes, we will see more of Jacob's faults And so, like last week, this is a story that should remind the people of Israel that they have nothing to boast in, that they were born in iniquity, that they must depend on the promises of God and the grace of God and not themselves. There are those lessons and many more that we can take from this passage, but when you read this as as literature, as we've been reading Genesis, as true inspired history written as literature, though, by the Holy Spirit through Moses, when you read it that way, the two main characters in the passage are the Lord and Rachel. The story begins with Rachel's barrenness in verse 31, and it is filled, the story is filled with all of her attempts at overcoming her barrenness on her own. And then the story ends with baby Joseph, first son of Rachel. And Rachel is praising the Lord at the end. So what is it that happens in between Rachel's barrenness and her child? What happens is a study in humiliation, and it's worth our time to examine this morning. So, as we get to this passage, the last thing that we heard from the Lord in Jacob's story was back in Genesis chapter 28, and there we saw a promise from the Lord that he would bring Jacob back into the land, and then the, Lord, the Lord's last words to Jacob were, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then we had last week's passage, this strange trickster marriage thing. And the Lord in chapter 29 is noticeably absent. He's not spoken of. Or rather, it's better to say he isn't acknowledged. Laban, Jacob's uncle and father-in-law, is not a worshiper of the Lord, of Yahweh. And Jacob is supposed to be in Genesis 29. But he's so caught up in his infatuation with Rachel that he has disregarded the Lord's good design for marriage, and he's essentially taken on the prideful religion of the East. He's disregarded the Lord and has taken for himself two sisters as his wives. So it is at the beginning of our passage this morning that we are reminded that the Lord has not left. He's still very much there. He's not left Jacob. Even in the midst of Jacob's sin and Laban's sin, the Lord is still very much present in this scene and because Jacob belongs to the Lord by covenant so does his wife and that's why look with me at verse 31 the first person introduced in this episode is the Lord when the Lord saw that Leah was hated he opened her womb the Lord saw the actions of the Lord the Lord saw the Lord opened. The Lord's response to Jacob's hatred toward Leah is grace toward Leah. He blesses her by bringing her children. The Lord sees the the lowly and the afflicted, and he cares for them, as we saw in all of those passages that we read. And Leah here is lowly, and Leah is afflicted. Her father, the man who should have protected her, has pushed her into an awful marriage situation. Now her husband, is just a guy who uses her and leaves her and goes back to her sister's tent. And Leah is about as low as one can get, and the Lord sees the lowly. The Lord sees her in her humble estate, and as a grace towards her, he opens her womb. Why? Because the Lord exalts the humble. But right here at the beginning of our passage, we have the corollary to that truth, The Lord humbles the exalted. Look at the rest of verse 31. But Rachel was barren. So right there, verse 31, you have this contrast. First wife, Leah, lowly, despised, and the Lord shows her mercy. Second wife, the younger, more beautiful Rachel, the one whom Jacob sinned in order to acquire, the one who is is loved by her husband and so she is exalted in her own mind. And in this entire situation, by the providence of God, this woman, Rachel, is barren. And we've seen this barrenness theme in Genesis before, haven't we? Sarah was barren and had to be brought to trust in the Lord after the the devastation of her own scheming. Her barrenness was, was, by God's providence, bringing her to faith. Rebecca was also barren. And she was brought to faith through that trial. And the same is true for Rachel. The Lord is going to bring her to trust Him. He's going to bring her to realize that she truly is, or what she truly is, and what she is not. She is not the perfect queen who has somehow deserves to carry the promises of God in her womb. Rather, she is a broken sinner dependent on the promises of the Lord for salvation needful of the mercy of the Lord. And the Lord will show her these things. Just as he has shown you and me our own neediness for Christ, he shows Rachel her need for his provision. To do this, the first action is the Lord's lifting up of lowly Leah. And as we see, as we, as we watch Leah's lifting up, her her exaltation, if you will. This is a process in itself, because you have to remember what's going on with Leah. Leah, as far as we can tell, is a believer, but she's so damaged because of Jacob that the Lord has to bring her to see the goodness of his own care for her. Watch how he does this for Leah. Look at verse 32. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Now, as an aside here, as we're walking through this passage together, the names of all of the sons of Israel here, all of the sons of the the tribes, or the fathers of the tribes, rather, they are linked. The names are linked somehow with the, the commentary from the women. All right, so you'll see uh, the name like Reuben, he, she bore a son, and then she says, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, my husband will love me. Reuben means a son, behold a son. So she's thinking the son will somehow get uh, Jacob's approval of her. Based on what Leah says here in, in verse 32, we know that Leah recognizes that the Lord has seen her in her lowly estate. She says it because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. She's, he sees her affliction and she knows that. And it's, it's good for Leah to recognize that, isn't it? But look at what else she says. Look at that last line. For now, my husband will love me. Leah thinks this baby is going to solve her marriage problem. She thinks the baby will make Jacob love her. And you can already feel your heart begin to sink, can't you? As you and I both know, this baby is not going to solve this problem. And I think Leah knows this too. Leah's problem isn't fertility, the problem is that the marriage started in lies, and then one week later it became further corrupted and polluted by a second wife. Leah's desire to be loved is a good desire. She wants the love of her husband. That's a good desire. But, but it, is, it is a desire to be loved as the wife of Jacob. And God designed marriage between, to be between one man and one woman, and this marriage has two women. And as long as Rachel is a second wife, Leah's desire to be the wife can never be met, can it? No matter how many children she has, she's still in a polygamous marriage verse 33 says she conceived and bore or she conceived again and bore a son and said because the Lord has heard that I am hated he has given me this son also and she called his name Simeon And here we see that the Lord saw in verse 31, the Lord is heard in verse 33, and now Leah is beginning to understand she is in the grace of God. She's in the favor of the Lord. He sees her, he listens to her prayers, she's being cared for by the Lord in the way that she longs for Jacob to care for her. And yet she isn't satisfied, is she? She's still longing for Jacob's exclusive love. And we see this in her Grievance mentioned with the birth of the third child. Look at verse 34. And she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. So three, three children now, born to Leah. No changes in a miserable marriage. Leah shows us she's desperately, desperately wanting Jacob to be attached to her exclusively, and she's even naming her children after these desires. But the Lord is showing Leah that these children are not the solution to the hole in her heart. Her desire to be satisfied in Jacob will never be met, and she still doesn't quite understand that. And so God, in his mercy towards Leah, to lift her out of her own self-pity, he gives her more grace. Look at verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So so now, after four children, lowly Leah is brought to the end of herself. The Lord is teaching her, Stop looking to Jacob. Stop looking to Jacob as your identity and your worth. Look to me instead. I am the one who provides for you. I am the, I'm the covenant God. And, and with this fourth child, I think Leah realizes this truth. There, there's no way for her soul to ultimately be satisfied with Jacob. Even if, even if she were his only wife. To idolize your husband is to always be unsatisfied Wives, do you know that? If your husband's love for you is what you care more about than anything else, you will never be content. Because it will never be enough. The more satisfied you are in Christ, the happier marriage will be because it is rightly ordered. In his his love for her, the Lord has shown mercy to Leah, and he has taught her through this childbearing process that he alone is her Savior. And look what she says, This time I will praise the Lord. As if, and, and I think it's true, the previous three childbirths, she did not respond with praise for the Lord. She's still longing for something more, something else. But this time, she's satisfied in the Lord alone. The Lord has lifted her up, little by little, to draw her eyes upward to him. And now because of the Lord's work in her, she's praising him. And don't miss the fact that it is with Judah that she realizes the satisfaction that only the Lord can give. Judah. Judah's line is the line of promise. Jesus the Messiah comes from the line of Judah. It will be through Judah that the Lord will save all of Israel and show all of Israel along with you and me that our only hope is in the Lord. And, and as, as, a, as an aside here, because know this is a little bit confusing to over-identify with, with these women, I don't want you to confuse what's happening here as a, especially women, I don't want you to confuse what's happening here as a direct parallel to your own life. It is not the case that having babies is the way that the Lord teaches all women to trust in Him. Though childbearing and childrearing is sanctifying for Christians, We need to remember that what's happening here is the birth of special babies, unique babies in the history of redemption. These are the babies of the promise, and Judah in particular is the child of the promise through whom the blessing to the nations comes. The more direct parallel for you and me is to see God's grace to us in giving us faith and the Holy Spirit, and so in a way, growing Christ in us. All right, so don't be overly uh, attached to your, what you have in common with Leah. So now Leah, though she was empty and lonely, as she has her for, for, fourth child, the child of the promise, now she is full and she's blessed. But she's not full of love from Jacob, she's full of love from the Lord. And she doesn't know it yet that she's holding baby Judah, but she is holding the child through whom the Christ will come. By the grace of God, she has there in her arms the hope of the world. And it's here when Rachel notices the glow and the joy in her sister that the Lord has brought her. Rachel sees her now rich sister favored by the Lord, and she becomes envious because she thinks, in her mind, Leah's wealth is those kids. And in chapter 30, verse 1, we read this. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Now, what, what we're supposed to do here is contrast 29.31 the beginning of our passage where the Bible says, the Lord saw with, with this one, when Rachel saw. And here is Rachel, who not only is a rival to Leah, but also in her own way has made herself a rival to the Lord. And she is the one that the Lord will humble before this family can leave Padan Aram and return to the promised land. The merciful Lord saw Leah's lowly estate and opened her womb and blessed her. But Rachel saw the provision that the Lord gave to Leah, and she envied. This is us, isn't it? Outside of faith, outside of the Spirit in us, this is us. Rather than rejoicing in the blessing of others, when we someone see, see someone with something that we want, but we haven't got, in our flesh we become covetous, we become envious. And this is our, our clue... That Rachel is not yet in the faith. She is operating according to the flesh and needs to be brought low in order to enter the kingdom. Rachel is not celebrating her sister's children, the children of the promise, who will bring blessing to all the nations. In Rachel's pride, all she wants is children of her own. So she lashes out. And she lashes out at Jacob. Give me children or I die. Just think about what she said. Give me children or I die. It, it, it is statements like this that help us to understand why Paul teaches that covetousness is idolatry. Rachel is coveting her sister's children. And she so longs for children that she has made an idol out of motherhood. If she can't be a mother, then she's nothing. The fact that that Rachel goes to Jacob to solve this fertility problem reveals more of her mixed-up theology. Either either Rachel doesn't yet understand or she doesn't believe that it is the Lord alone who brings children. She believes it is her husband and that somehow he's withholding from her. And you see in, in that marital tension there, You see some evidence for what I mentioned earlier. Wives, if you believe your husband's love is the key to joy and contentment and a satisfied life, Rachel is evidence that you're wrong. Rachel has Jacob's love. But it isn't enough. She wants children more than she wants Jacob's love. And life is only worth living if she can have her heart's desire. Jacob's response to her is worth examining. Look at verse 2, chapter 30, verse 2. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Now, now, to his credit, he's correcting her bad theology, isn't he? Children are a gift from the Lord alone, not from Jacob. But the way that Jacob speaks this truth is not in love. He's saying to her, just kind of read between the lines. He's he's saying, Rachel, this is between you and God. Don't try to drag me into this. I've got four kids, remember? This is not a me problem. This is a you problem. I am not responsible for whatever it is you've done that has led God to treat you this way. You see what he's doing? We might not notice Jacob's fault here if we didn't previously have a similar situation with Isaac and Rebekah. Back when Isaac and Rebekah were first married and it became evident that Rebekah was barren, Isaac's response was, you remember, he prayed for her. Genesis 25 says that Isaac prayed for his wife. He didn't just tell Rebekah, this isn't my fault, this is you. Regardless of whose fault Rebecca's barrenness was, because he was a one-flesh union with her, whatever she was suffering, he was also suffering. He knew that. And so he prayed for his wife because she was his own flesh. Brothers, pray for your wives. Just as Jesus, who loves the church and laid down his life for the church, just as he stands before the Lord as the intercessor for you, Christ's bride, husbands, pray for your wives. When your wife comes to you bitter or angry or envious, don't respond in the flesh as Jacob did. Respond in the spirit as Isaac did, as Christ does. Pray for her. Pray that your wife would be more satisfied in Christ than in you. Pray that she would know her value is more in Christ than in how many kids she has or whether she brings any income, or how clean the house is, or how pretty she is, or how good a cook she is, or whatever else it may be. Your role as her husband is to lead her in truth, yes, but not in coldness. Rather, in the joy and the warmth of Christ, go before the throne for her. Jacob does not do this. Jacob just backs off and says, this is nothing to do with me. And did you notice that in this passage, this is the only thing Jacob says the whole time. He doesn't name any of these children. The women do all the naming. He doesn't lead any of the women. He doesn't seek to find some sort of resolution to the mess that he's made by marrying two sisters. Jacob, in this passage, is more like an animal. He's he's like a ram in the flock rather than a shepherd. All Jacob does is breed when he's put in the pen with the ewes he just breeds and sometimes gets angry when more is expected of him and because jacob does not lead rachel to the lord in humble submission when he has the opportunity right here what happens instead is rachel leads jacob Just as Adam and Eve showed us, just as Abraham and Sarah showed us, when the husband will not lead, the wife will. Look at verse 3. Then she said, here's my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. Did you notice the tone here? Rachel is commanding Jacob. Do you see that? Here's my servant. Go into her. Rather than humbling herself under the hand of God and seeking the Lord, she's further rebelling against the Lord and commanding Jacob to produce children with another woman. And now, because of Rachel's rebellion against God and Jacob's lack of leadership and, and lack of conviction, this marriage now has three wives. Sin begets sin begets sin. And this will not fix the marriage, will it? It will only bring more destruction. And the problem is that when Bilhah has this baby, prideful Rachel believes she has forced God's hand with her scheming here. Look at verse 5. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged or vindicated me, like proven that what I've done is right. And has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. But it's not Rachel's son, is it? It's Bilhah's son. In Rachel's mind, though, she is so far above Bilhah that anything Bilhah produces belongs to her. So so when the fertility of the servant girl brings forth a child, Rachel takes the credit for it. This is the height of arrogance and pride. And the thing is, Rachel knows what she's doing. This is, this is not, she's not doing this in naivety. She's doing this with, with a proud spirit. When she sends Jacob back to Bilhah for another child, she reveals what's going on in her heart. She's wrestling with God. She's fighting with God. Look at verse seven. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Now, your Bible probably has a footnote or a comment beside that word mighty, mighty, mighty wrestlings. The, the word that we translate as mighty is the word Elohim, the same word often translated as God. Rachel recognizes that God has made her barren. She's come to that, that, that reality, and so she's, in response, eluding his hand on her life by scheming and having her stud horse produce children with Bilhah. All for what? For pride. Because her goal in life is to outdo Leah. So she says, in wrestling with God, mighty wrestlings, in wrestling with God, I have prevailed over my sister. You see just the, just the, the arrogance is just so thick, isn't it? Not only have I conquered my sister, I've conquered God in order to conquer my sister. But has she? Has Rachel prevailed? Let me just, let's just count. Leah has produced four children, Bilhah has produced two. Rachel's taking credit because of whatever loophole she's created in her system. She thinks she can catch up to Leah through this scheme. It's still four to two, though. And this, of course, leads to more sin, doesn't it? Now, Leah. Whom the Lord has lifted up above the fray, now Leah is sucked back into all the madness. Look at verse 9. When Leah saw, there's, there's that contrast again. When God sees the mess, he brings grace. When people see the mess, when Rachel saw, when Leah saw, we just bring more destruction. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children... She took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. And with that, Leah has nullified any gains that Rachel has made in this race for children. And so now the score is again four to zero. And yet, Rachel's self-confidence is still running strong. She's not been brought down even a notch. She's tried scheming against God by, by adding wives to the marriage. That's gotten her nowhere. In the next section, Rachel tries superstition and magic to try and get children. Look at verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, "'Please give me some of your son's mandrakes.' But she said to her, "'Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also?' Rachel said, "'Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes.' When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, "'You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes.' So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son.'" Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Now, I'm, I'm going to stick with, with the Rachel storyline here. So we're going to overlook Leah's strange commentary of what's happening. That's probably another sermon entirely. But just to give you a little perspective here, between Rachel and the Lord, Rachel has now bartered off the stud ram for the mandrakes, and and mandrakes are a a funny little fruit. And most of you are thinking Harry Potter, but don't don't think that. Mandrakes are a funny little fruit that look a little bit like. Uh, a weed that we have around here, those purple, uh, star-flowered, nightshade that, that that grow wild around here, that grow the the, the little yellow cherry tomato-looking things. Uh, that is, it's a yellow-fruited nightshade, and that's actually very similar to what the mandrake looks like. Mandrakes are uh, they're in the same family, like nightshade, and they grow like weeds, wild like weeds in the Middle East. Legend has it that because the root of the mandrake is shaped somewhat like a human with arms and legs, actually kind of like the one in Harry Potter, the, the fruits of the fruit or, uh, of this plant could, pro- could produce humans, right? If the root looks like a human, maybe the fruit would also produce humans. Think of it like a fertility drug. And the fact that Rachel wants them so badly reveals that she doesn't truly believe that Bill Haw's kids are her own, right? She's kind of showing her cards. Yeah, I, I know. Bilhah's kids aren't mine. I still need kids of my own. She knows it. She still wants to give birth to her own babies, and she'll do anything to get that, anything except bow before the Lord. So she trades off her husband for a drug that the ancient Arabs called the devil's testicles. Just that bit of information for you this morning. <laughs> And the point of this passage, the point of all of this story, because you read the story and you go, what's going on with the mandrakes? The point of the story is that it doesn't work. Leah has three kids over the course of the next few years, so now she has four sons and one daughter. Let's see, six sons and one daughter. Six sons and one daughter. All the while, prideful, scheming Rachel remains barren. Time and again... Rachel has fought with the Lord. She's wrestled with the Lord to force his blessing of children. And all the while, the Lord has kept his hand of providence, this this trial of barrenness on Rachel's life. He's, He's pressed barrenness upon Rachel to reveal to her there is nothing in her There's there's, there's nothing in her own wit. There's nothing in her scheming. There's nothing in her beauty. There's nothing in her trickery that can bring the blessing of the promise. Nothing can force God's hand. The children of the promise come from the Lord alone. And by the time we get to verse 22, after seven years, Rachel gives in. She cries out to the Lord. She submits to the Lord and asks the Lord to to bring her the promise. Look at verse 22. When it says God remembered her and listened to her, that means that she prayed. So look at verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. The last time we saw something like God remembered, it was when Abraham had prayed that God would spare Lot from Sodom. And Genesis 19 says, God remembered Abraham, and he sent Lot out. God's remembrance comes in response to the pleas of his people. Rachel is pleading with the Lord, and he hears her, and he answers her. Verse 23 says, she conceived and bore a son, and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son, And there it is. Rachel has gone from high and mighty Rachel, uncorrectable, with no faith, in her own heart, an enemy of God, but the Lord has not given up on her, has He? He's let her come to the end of herself so that He can bring her this blessing. And that is just a good reminder that there are, there's two ways to live. The first is as Jonathan Edwards describes it. The aspiring, ambitious, ostentatious, assuming, arrogant, scornful, stubborn, willful, leveling, self-justifying life. That's one life. The second way to live is as 1 Peter 5 says, the humble life. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord by his mighty hand will bring you low. Through your circumstances Through your sin, even, whatever it may be, he will bring you to the end of yourself for your good and for his glory. When Peter, 1 Peter 5, when he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, he's teaching us that God is bringing us low in order to unite us to Christ, in order to exalt us in Christ. God's not doing this because he hates you. It is his mercy toward you, as Peter says, his care for you. Left on your own, what happens? You stay up here. You stay in your pride. I stay in my pride, left on my own. If I'm never confronted with my sin, I stay up here. If, I'm never, if I never suffer, I stay up here. But the Lord, in his kindness, brings us low. And that's where we are united to Christ. Where? In the grave. That's where we are united to Christ and then resurrected with Christ. The right response to God's humbling, the right response to to God's mighty hand over you, is to receive this discipline of the Lord in humility. That's what humble yourself means. It's not actually something that you can do. You can't humble yourself. It has to be under the hand of God. If if humbling ourselves from up here to down here were something that we could do all by ourselves, well, we would have reason to boast in that, wouldn't it? Good on me for humbling myself, and that's self-defeating. Look what I did. I made something of myself. That's not how this works. We are humbled under the mighty hand of God. Rachel has been humbled under the mighty hand of God. She has been brought to see the end of all of her striving so that God might bless her with Joseph. The Lord brings a trial into your life or trials, plural, into your life in order to teach you to trust him. And the response is, well, if the Lord has revealed to you your sin, repent, turn to Christ. That is the good purpose of the Spirit's work in you, not to destroy you, but to destroy your flesh to bring you to Christ. If the Lord has brought some other suffering in your life, work-related, marriage-related, children-related, whatever it may be, sickness-related, trust Him through it judge not the lord by feeble sense but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face his purposes will ripen fast unfolding every hour the bud may have a bitter taste but sweet will be the flower amen sweet will be the flower